One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 24. Many of you are familiar with it. It's a psalm of ascent, a psalm to be sung while the congregation is ascending up to Jerusalem for worship, and it asks the question, who can enter? Who can stand on his holy hill? And it's actually, it's a song about triumphal entry. You can hear that in the closing verses of the psalm. It says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. It's the kind of psalm you'd sing as people met the king outside the city as he was returning from battle victorious, and they would enter into the city with him and enter into the gates. And there's, as we said, it would be a triumphal entry for this victorious king. And it, of course, prefigures what will happen with Jesus as the worshipers saying Hosanna as he enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. And that ultimately looks forward to what will happen in the end. When all those who are with Christ will meet him in the air and enter into the kingdom, new creation, with him. That's a triumphal entry scene that scripture talks about. That's what's going on here in Psalm 24. And it asks the question, who can ascend? Who, who can stand in God's holy place? It brings up the question, who can be part of his people? Who can be part of that great parade, that great triumphal procession, marching with the king, praising his name? Who are the people that belong there? What kind of person can enter into glory with the king? And it's actually the same question that Acts has been wrestling with for these last few chapters. What kind of people can be part of his people? What must they do to be part of God's kingdom that will eventually triumph in the end with its king? That's a question God is answering for Peter in the early church, and we've been talking about it for a few weeks, but if you're new uh, or visiting, what's been going on in the book of Acts is we have the early church moved along by the Spirit, preaching Jesus, but there's a question for the early church, uh, and it's a kind of a social question of who can be part of it and how. And there are kind of two categories of people in those times and in that place. There's Jew and Gentile. The Jewish person is the, the Israelite, or the person who's converted to Judaism and become an Israelite, and they obey the law of Moses. They obey the covenant and the commands of Moses, uh, chiefly circumcision, which marks out who's a part of the Mosaic covenant. Those are Jews, and then there's Gentiles who are not Jews, and Gentiles is everybody else, all the other nations, all the other people who are not under the law of Moses. And what starts happening, as we've seen in the early church, is that both Jew and Gentile start believing in Jesus. And as we saw previously last week, even Gentiles start receiving the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes upon and falls upon Gentiles just as Jews. So they're all together believing in Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and the question comes up, do these new Gentiles who are coming in, do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to obey the law of Moses? Do they have to become Jews in order to be Christians? To help along with that question, God gives Peter a vision. And on that vision, there's a sheet with all kinds of animals on it. 
And traditionally, in, according to Jewish custom and law of Moses, there are clean and unclean animals. There are some animals you can eat, some animals you can't. But on this sheet are all kinds of animals, and God says, eat them all. And the point being, there are no unclean people anymore. All kinds of people can be part of this people, this kingdom. And they don't have to observe the laws of Moses before they become a true and genuine Christian part of this kingdom. In other words, Gentiles don't have to become Jews before Christians. They're all one in Christ. That's the work that's been going on in these last few sections. In this section, God goes to great lengths to prove this truth to the church, that Gentiles are full participants. They may enter into the kingdom. They may ascend the hill of the Lord and stand triumphant with King Jesus. So we've been answering the question, how does God prove it? How does God show that in these few chapters here? In this last section, we're going to ask that question again. How does God prove that all kinds of people can be his gospel people? How does he show it to Peter and the other church? How does God prove that all kinds of people can be his gospel people in this new community? That all kinds of people may enter in and be fully part of the church. And what we see here in chapter 11 is that these Gentiles become fully integrated into the church and even become a key part of the church blessing the church. So that's the whole story. That's what's happening here in these 30 verses. The Gentiles become fully integrated into the church, proving all kinds of people can be his gospel people. Let's see how that happens. First, in verses 1 through 18, we see that the church accepts Gentiles. After Peter's had his vision, he goes and reports to the church, and we find that the church accepts Gentiles. That a decision is made, they can be part of this community. See how that plays out in verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. We'll stop there. So where we left Peter, he had just preached to Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and a bunch of Cornelius' friends and family were there, a bunch of Gentiles. Peter preached the gospel to them. They all received it. They heard it. The Holy Spirit fell upon them. They were baptized, making them part of the church. So Peter welcomed in these Gentiles because they had had the Holy Spirit. They believed in Jesus Christ. So Peter goes and reports that back to the church in Jerusalem. This is what happened. And there are some who are unhappy about it. Why? They are part of what is known as the circumcision party. What's the circumcision party? The circumcision party is a group of Jews who believe in Christ, so they're they're Christians, but they are convinced that everybody who becomes part of the church has to be circumcised first. They have to be obedient to the law of Moses. So they're called their circumcision party. Acts 15 says this. Luke writes about them. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. So the circumcision party where believers said, in order to be saved, you have to be circumcised. This is, in many ways, the first heresy of the church. 
It's the first big theological dispute that the church is going to have within its own ranks. There are these people who are basically teaching a form of legalism and exclusion, saying you have to enter in by your works. They taught that if you're going to enter into the community of Christ, you enter in by obedience to the law and not just faith alone. The New Testament will oppose this all throughout Galatians. In Galatians, Paul will call it a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So the real gospel is we are saved by Christ alone, by faith alone, by what he has done, by believing in him. That is how we are saved. That's what the real gospel teaches. Saved by Christ alone and by faith in him alone. The false gospel of the circumcision party is we are saved by faith and by being circumcised in obedience to the law. It adds another condition. Here's the work you have to do if you're going to be part of the saved community. And when these people who believe what we would now know as heresy and what the apostles then fought against, this heretical teaching, when they heard that Peter had been associating with these unclean people, they were upset that Peter would dare violate their customs, violate the law of Moses, make himself unclean by associating with Gentiles. So Peter's going to tell the story of what happened so that they can see that this wasn't my doing, this is God's doing, this is God's will. That's what Peter's going to try to prove to them. This is God's work. Uh, some of you who are older may remember a thing called comics in what was called a newspaper. Um, and this is a thing printed on real paper. You'd fold it out on Sunday morning and, and there'd be comics. And one of those comics was Family Circus. And in Family Circus, if you're familiar with that comic, there was something called the Not Me Ghost. Uh, if you're familiar with that, and the parents would see something wrong that had happened, the cookies out of the cookie jar were all eaten or a vase had fallen down, and they'd ask the kids, what happened? And the kids would say, it's not me. And then in the corner of the comic, there'd be the not me ghost. And there's a ghost that had not me written on it. So they're saying, he did it. And the parents can't see the ghost. The kids can. say, it wasn't us. It was the not me ghost. Uh, Peter's doing the same thing here. You could call it the not me holy ghost. He's saying... I didn't do this. This wasn't my doing. This is the Lord at work here. And you'll see in the way he tells the story. So I'm going to read it. Watch how he tells the story and places all the emphasis on this is what God has done. Starts in verse 4. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. Behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and pray and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. 
As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. So they criticized Peter for eating with Gentiles. Here's what Peter says. God gave me a vision three times telling me no foods were unclean any longer. God sent Gentiles to my door and told me to go with them. He made no distinction. He didn't say, you know, separate them out by Jew and Gentile. No, he said, made no distinction. Say, go with them. God sent an angel to those other guys, telling them to come get me. God caused them to hear the gospel message. God sent the Holy Spirit who fell upon them, just as he gave us the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It was all God's doing that these Gentiles received the gospel. So if God is doing this, what am I, Peter, supposed to do? They belonged to us and to Jesus, obviously, so we baptized them. So Peter makes his conclusion, verse 16. I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Here's Peter's theological conclusion. He remembers John himself had said, I baptize with water, but one's coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to his disciples in Acts 1.5, John baptized with water, but I baptize you with the Holy Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit will be given to all who are part of this community. It's the thing that marks you out as belonging to this kingdom. How do you know that you're Americans, for those of you who are? What, what markers mark you out as an American? Well, you maybe have a U.S. birth certificate, you have a, a passport, you pay taxes... Those are the things that make you, mark you out, signifies that you belong to the kingdom, the empire of the United States. What is it that marks you out as belonging to God's kingdom? The Holy Spirit. All who are part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ are given the Holy Spirit. And if everybody's, these Gentiles are given the Holy Spirit, then they're part of the kingdom. That's Peter's conclusion. Everybody agrees. Yep, that's right. So they all rejoice. The circumcision party wanted to make circumcision the thing that made people part of the kingdom, but they had been overruled by God himself. It is the Holy Spirit that makes people a part of this Christian community. That God has granted them repentance and eternal life. seeing this is God's work in saving these people, salvation belongs to him, they rejoice together. This little argument, this theological discussion that's going to come up again in the New Testament all throughout, of who is part of the kingdom of God, is really, really important for us. Who will we say is a part of our community, and on what basis? It was a challenge to them, and it's a challenge for Christians throughout the ages, because certain people who were entering into the community made them very uncomfortable. 
if I am a person who holds to the law of Moses and all of a sudden I have these unclean people coming in, then I'm going to have to change my habits. If they're going to be part of us, then not everything is going to be you know, kosher or according to the law. Now, now, I have to change to allow them in? How come they don't change? That was their attitude, right? No, they should change. This is something the church is going to struggle with in every context and every age because we don't like to change. We don't like to be made uncomfortable. But that is part of what it means to be a Christian in a church is to be united to people who make you uncomfortable. And if you don't understand that, look at the 12. Look at what Jesus did from the very beginning. He said, I'm going to take a tax collector and a zealot and you guys are going to get along. Somebody who works for the government, somebody who wants to bring the government down, you now have a new king and a new lord, so play together. Right? There's an agenda with what Jesus is doing there. And it's going to shape his community forevermore. And it ought to shape us. Who can be part of our community? First question, and maybe really the only question, do they have the Holy Spirit and have they believed in Jesus? Everything beyond that we can work with. And that's really important for us because more and more the world just might not look like us. In all sorts of ways. I'm at the point now where I'm technically what's known as an elder millennial. I'm on the older side of millennial, which means I'm out of touch with the kids. I've realized that now. I've gotten to that point. I don't know what they're talking about. But if we want the younger generation to be part of us and say, well, there are going to be some things I'm just going to have to get over. This is the way they work. This is the way they operate. I can't hold on to all my preferences. All of us have to do that work, to be part of a gospel community in a world that is really changing around us. As people come in, they might have bad teaching from the world, bad frameworks, things that are inconsistent with Scripture. And we're going to have to answer a question, do we make them abide by all the rules of Scripture first? And once they clean themselves up and you know, get circumcised, so to speak, then they can be part of the church and part of us? Do we add extra things on top of the gospel? Or do we say, hey, if you believe in Jesus, come and be part of us. We'll deal with whatever else later. Maybe there's some ways we need to change. Maybe there's some ways you need to change, but let's start here and not add a bunch of extra things on top. This will be really challenging, I think. Because more and more people aren't going to come into the church with a kind of a Judeo-Christian worldview fully formed and packaged. It's going to be different. Different backgrounds, different homes, different contexts. And if we say you've got to kind of get all the culture right before being a part of us, nobody's going to be a part of us. We have to make sure that the Holy Spirit, faith in Christ, are what marks us out and unites us. This is what the church does and struggles with, but it welcomes people in and affirms that, yeah, these Gentiles, they can be part of us, and they celebrate that. There's much rejoicing. And then we we move on. There's a little bit of a transition here. We moved away from Peter and his experience with the Gentiles, and now the book of Acts is going to focus a lot more on Paul. But the same theme is there in the rest of chapter 11, because this is 
dealing with Gentiles, as we'll see. And what happens is, once the church accepts Gentiles, the church disciples Gentiles. The church raises them up and disciples them and teaches them. And we see that in verses 19 through 26. The church disciples Gentiles. It begins to invest in them. Verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So now we're transitioning to the church abroad, away from Jerusalem, away from Peter. And Luke reminds us of how there was persecution under Saul, and that scattered the church after Stephen's uh, martyrdom and execution. The church began to scatter, and so they scattered across the Mediterranean and the ancient Near Eastern world. And believers settled in this one city, Antioch especially. Antioch is a hugely important city in the ancient world. It's probably the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria and Egypt. There is Antioch, which is in modern-day Turkey and Syria, and ancient Syria. is a Roman capital of Syria. 18 miles off the the coast, north of Jerusalem. And it kind of became a religious center, a cultural center, a um, trade center, a commercial center. It was like an ancient New York. A little bit off the coast, a lot of trade went there. Uh, A lot of different religions. There were Jews settled there. There were people of every kind in Antioch as people traveled through there. Lots of false religions as well. And there were both Jew and Gentile. And at first, the church goes out preaching the gospel, the Messiah, Jesus Christ has come only to Jews. But then there are a few other uh, enterprising young folks who start to preach the Hellenists also. Hellenists refers to Greek-speaking persons, Greek culture people. Sometimes, in the book of Acts or in Scripture, Hellenists refers to Greek-speaking Jews. They were... Greek Jewish people. Sometimes Hellenists refers to uh, Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. And then sometimes Hellenists refers to just Greek-speaking Gentiles who did not believe in the God of Abraham. The main thing is they were Greek-speaking Greek culture, and context will determine what kind of Greeks we're talking about here. It's clear from this context we're talking about Greek Gentiles because of contrast, some spoke to Jews only, but others started speaking to the Hellenists, to the Gentiles. They preached to them. Uh, if you're in business, you may be familiar with the Blue Ocean Strategy. Blue Ocean Strategy is where you try to find a market for a product where there is little competition. Lots of open water in front of you. A deep, unexplored, untainted by the competition where there's lots of space to operate. So if you're a business, you have a certain product, you try and find a place where where's a place where there's just little competition, no competition here. Uh, so if you have a Nintendo Wii, and if you have one of those or did have one of those, that was a hugely successful video game console from Nintendo 
because they intentionally went with the blue ocean strategy. They targeted non-video game players, which is why a bunch of people had that in their homes and only had like one game for it and then put it away and it collected dust because you weren't hardcore gamers, but you bought one. And that was intentional by Nintendo. They said, we're not going to compete with Sony's PlayStation. We're not going to compete with Microsoft's Xbox. We're going to go after the untapped market of people who aren't into video games. And they sold a ton of units. And then their next system died because they couldn't repeat the business, right? But that's a blue ocean strategy. That's what these guys are doing in the church. Okay, we've been going to Jews, but let's try a new market. How about Gentiles? Will they respond to the gospel? Will these people who haven't heard, who have no context, have no framework for who a Messiah is, will they respond to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? And it turns out, yes, that's exactly what happened, because God is the God of all people, and Jesus is the Savior of all people, and Jesus is the Lord of all people. So they went and preached, and it's interesting, I think it's intentional, Jesus is Lord, not just Jesus as Messiah. The Gentiles were called to say that Caesar is Lord, our kings and our emperors, that they're gods, that they're our lords and masters. But they went, and these um, preaching Christians went and said, no, actually, you have a new lord. His name is Jesus, and he's a good one. He is lord, and oh lord, no god himself, he, he was sent. And he lived as a man and lived humbly among us, and he lived and he died for the sins of the world. And he was buried after being crucified on a cross for three days, but then he ascended, and he is living and reigning and ruling now, and he will come to judge the world. He is Lord, that's who Jesus is, that's the gospel they preached, and as they preached it, people responded. And they came to faith, particularly in the city of Antioch. Many Gentiles came to faith there. So the church hears about this, and they say, what are we going to do? We're going to send our best encourager, Barnabas. He's the one who first discerned that Paul is safe. He's one of us. Said, who better to send than Barnabas? And I love what Barnabas does. First, he, he goes to all these new Gentile Christians, and he doesn't argue about circumcision or anything. He says just, he just rejoices, right? He's happy. People are coming to the Lord. And then he sees a lot of Christians there, and he doesn't say, you know what? I can stake my claim, and these can be my people, and I'll be their teacher and leader. He looks at them, he says, well, I'm going to teach them, I'm going to invest in them, I'm going to disciple them, but then I'm going to get somebody else. Because we need help here. Who's the best teacher I know? And he goes and gets his friend Paul, also known as Saul, recruits him, brings him over, and there Barnabas and Saul invest in this church, invest in these Gentiles. They raise them up, charges them to be faithful. They stay there for a year teaching them because they understand that the Christian life is not just about baptism, then you get in and then you're done. They intentionally teach and disciple this young church. It's what we want to do at CBC. How do we do this? We want people to come to the Lord here, and to know the Lord. So we have to ask the question, okay, let's say the Lord, by his grace, brings in a bunch of new Christians. What are we going to do to disciple them? If God incredibly blessed us, and we had tons of baptisms this next year. What is our plan for bringing them up in Jesus and discipling them? 
this question of discipleship touches everything. It's, it's why we want to have a good Sunday school ministry to educate people. It's why we want people to come to corporate gatherings and worship because you're discipled by how you sing and what you sing and what you do together and serving one another. It's why we want people engaged in small groups and Bible studies and those kinds of things so you learn to rub shoulders with other Christians and know, okay, this is what the Christian life is like and, and you can encourage one another. It's why we want people serving and using their gifts because part of how you disciple is how you minister and figure out this is how the Lord has blessed me to serve the church. It's why we are very intentional, not all of you know about this, but why we're intentional about discipleship groups. And you're going to hear more about that coming up and some of you have been involved in them. A very intentional strategy for how are we going to create a culture of discipleship, of intentionally walking with one another. Not just doing ministry and running programs for years on end without any life change, but very intentionally guiding you in the Christian life and how are we going to live it together. These are the kinds of things we want to be about as a church. We haven't figured it all out. We'll never get there. No church is perfect, but we have to have this discipleship emphasis. That's what they did with the early church. They brought in people to teach them, to train them, to raise them up. And as they were doing it, they were called Christians for the first time. We don't know whether this name of Christian was one they gave to themselves or whether there was a mocking pejorative remark. You Christians, you followers of Christ. Either way, the label stuck. These Christians, these followers of Christ. What I think is fascinating about that is that there was a need for another name. There's a reason the label of Christians stuck and was used and had to be used. Because we didn't know what to call it. We have this new thing, this new group of people. They're not Jews, because some of them aren't circumcised. They're not Gentiles, because they worship the God of Abraham and the Messiah. What do we call these people? Something different and new. They're Christians. I love that. Christians should not look like anything else in this world. A new and distinct people. Or people of all kinds of different background are united in their Lord Jesus Christ. So these Gentiles are discipled by the church, and then I love what happened with verses 27 through 33, or through 30. Don't want to add on extra verses of the Bible. What happens in these few verses here is what just so happens when you send out people and the gospel is preached and people are converted and they're raised up, that the church is blessed by it. The church is blessed by Gentiles. The church accepts Gentiles, the church disciples Gentiles, and as a result, the church is blessed by Gentiles. Verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So you have this church in Antioch, and they don't have prophets, but Jerusalem did. Prophets weren't everywhere. Prophets were kind of a special group of people uh, used by God to speak the words of God. They were around in the New Testament. Are they still around today? I'm not going to answer that question. I'm not sure. Depends on how you define prophet. But prophets were people who speak the revelation, the words of God. 
whatever your view of prophecy, all Christians today would say whatever is spoken has to be submitted to Scripture. At that time, there was no Scripture written, or at least there was Old Testament Scripture, not the New Testament letter. So canon was still being formed, Scripture still being laid out. There were prophets. All right, all that aside, that's not important. The important part is that Antioch didn't have any, but Jerusalem sent some, and Agabus went down. He's one of those prophets, and he receives revelation from God. Sounds a little bit like Joseph, doesn't it? Famine's coming. Happened in the time of Claudius the emperor, and what we know of that time under Claudius the emperor, in about mid-40s, 40s to 50s AD, there were a lot of famines. So this accords, as we would expect, right with history. There was a worldwide famine that Agabus foretold. So what does this young church of Jew and Gentile do? They're in an affluent city. They hear of a famine coming and decide, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to send relief to their brothers and sisters in Judea. Think about this. What does it say about the famine? It was worldwide. So they were impacted by the famine too. They didn't hold on to all that they had for themselves. They said, no, we're part of a larger body of Christ, so we're going to help out our brothers and sisters. It says they gave as they had ability, which is another way of saying they gave out of their surplus, whatever extra they had. They weren't forced to it. They weren't cajoled into it. But there's charitable, self-determined giving. And then, and I think one of the greater miracles of Acts, it's not a dead person being raised to life. Uh, it's not a miraculous healing. But if you have eyes to see, I think this is one of the most miraculous statements in all of the book of Acts. How does the money get back? Saul and Barnabas go together. What are they doing? Taking money from the Gentiles, giving it back to the home church, the Jews. So here's the picture. Barnabas, the great encourager of the church. Saul, the one who had Christians killed. Persecutor of the church. Now united together in ministry, taking a gift from Gentiles back to help the Jews. This is gospel unity. People who should have no business being together, serving one another, united under the banner of Christ. And look what's happened. The Jews accepted Gentiles in, and they were saved by it. They were blessed by it. This is why we send people out. This is why we look outside of our four walls and we want to be a church that invests and sends. Because I guarantee in the Lord's economy, that's how you gain. We don't just do it for selfish reasons, but the Lord blesses that. That's why we had a meeting this morning talking about sending people to Utah. That's why we've sent... 
teams to Utah for three years straight because there's a church there that we wanted to help plant and establish. We have a partnership with them, and we know that the more we increase that partnership and help them, and as they get planted and people come to faith, we'll be, we'll be blessed by it. It might be that our next pastor comes from there. You know, we never know. One of our own, James Friesen, is there ministering and serving. That's how this works in the church. You send people out and then you're blessed by it. Uh, This is what we want to do in our missions. With the missions people we support, we don't want to just send money, but we want to build relationships and partnerships so that we send people out and that we are eventually in turn blessed by that. And there's a reciprocal relationship. Um, Multiply, which is our missions agency in our denomination. We finally, praise the Lord, hired a new general director after a long time, a guy by the name of Bruce Enns, and he's a pastor out of Saskatchewan. And his church has done a really good job of building relationships with missionaries overseas. And we are candidating, and he is candidating, and we are interviewing him. It's one of the things that I was intrigued in as he talked about how he had built partnerships with missionaries and churches in different places. And they had one particular partnership with a church in South America where they had sent people uh, to help a missions team over years and years, and then that missions team became a church, and the church starts sending people back, and then they start sending people back and forth, and, and to the point where he and his family just went down and spent Christmas there. Not on like a mission trip to do work, but just because they loved them and to hang out. And there was another time he said where that church would have been really impacted by persecution and some hard things that happened in the church, so they just sent a team down there just to hang out with them and encourage them. And, and they've sent people back to teach and to share the gospel. This is what the church looks like at its best. This is why we want to plant. And then some of us are very concerned, and I'm too, about can we afford that? And while I'll make you the general commitment, we're not going to cripple ourselves in order to plant, I will also say, I don't think we can afford not to. If you have a short-term view, just who we are right here now, you might be very concerned about sending people out. If you have an understanding of how God works in his economy and a long-term view, we can't afford to hold everybody in. We have to send out with the gospel. And I promise you, we will be blessed by it. It happened here in the early church. Pastor James Boyce said, if the Gentiles had not been received in the church as they were, as believing Gentiles, without their first having to become Jews, the church of Jesus Christ would never have become the universal missionary force that has proved itself to be throughout the long centuries of church history. It would have remained a limited ethnic community, as Judaism itself was at the time of Christ, and for the most part continues to be today. It's how they knew God saved all kinds of people because these people are integrated and start blessing the church. That's a lesson the church will need to hear over and over again. And maybe you say, like, I've got all that. I understand that. But I would encourage you, we need to keep reiterating this truth that God saves all kinds of people because even Peter himself forgot this. So here's Peter. He's at the forefront of this. He's seen the Holy Spirit move 
He's been one of the people arguing for inclusion of the Gentiles, right? That's Peter. Do you remember the book of Galatians and what happens in Galatians? Paul will talk about how he had to confront Peter. Now, even Barnabas had been led astray. Why? Because under pressure from the circumcision party that would keep coming back and saying, we have to be circumcised, we have to be Jews, that pressure would increase, they wouldn't go away forever, and they'd start to influence Peter, and even Peter started to withdraw from the Gentiles and only eat with the Jews and keep kosher. So Paul has to go and confront Peter and say, Peter, remember this truth. Because there's something persistent in us that just wants to be comfortable and be with our own kind, whatever that is. Peter can slip in this. So can we. We have to be prodded and reminded to remember all kinds of people can be his gospel people. We see that as Gentiles are welcomed into and turn bless the church. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you welcome in all kinds of people because if you didn't, we wouldn't be here. Let us never cease to wonder at your grace and your mercy, your compassion upon us. We who had no right to salvation, no claim upon uh, heritage of your people, we who are Gentiles, wandering from you have been brought near and made part of your family by Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. We thank you and praise you for it. Let us never be arrogant of our place, but generous with the gospel, inviting all to come and find their Lord and meet their Savior in Jesus Christ. And as we do that work, Lord, we do pray that you would bless it for your glory, for your praise, for your honor and our good. We trust you in all of this, for you are good. Amen.